It is another blessed opportunity we've been given this Sunday afternoon and, yea, into the evening hour shortly to assemble and to gather in the way that we are to give some thought to another lesson from the Word of God. This one, of course, a little bit unusual in that you select the subjects. Questions and answer time. This will be the fifth one we've done this year in which we simply take questions that have been provided to me either in that box out there in the foyer or perhaps even directly one-on-one and then we offer some consideration from the Word of God relative to those, to those particular themes, questions, and topics. As we do that, this opening slide is another introductory one, and I would again like to remind you that in terms of the questions, it's, it's not my questions. Those that have been posed to me in one way or another, and they're at the bottom of that slide. Of course, the reason we do this is we are convicted that it is this book that has the answer to those issues, the questions we have in life. And therefore, it isn't merely anybody's opinion or anybody's speculation. Tonight, as we look at some of these questions, we have several particular questions that have been offered. And so we'll step through them one by one. The first one is a bit lengthy. This one, as it was presented to me, let me read it. And again, it's a bit of a lengthy question. But the person asked the following. Is it wrong to post selfies and pictures of oneself? And also, is it wrong to brag about everything you do and everything you have? Self-exaltation is one of the most dangerous sins in the Bible. It's rooted in pride, and, keeps, and pride keeps us from God, according to Psalm 138, verse 6. Self-exaltation is the opposite purpose for people. God created us to glorify God, not ourselves, Isaiah 43, 7. Posting selfies, why we do what we do with that picture will determine if God is pleased or displeased with our actions. Most often, selfies are rooted in self-exaltation. The Bible says God judges the motives of the heart. When it comes to selfies, are your heart motives pleasing to God or to self? Outright bragging and humble bragging can hurt a person's chances of growing as a Christian, and they also can place a stumbling block before others. Could this post hurt other people? Why are you posting what you're posting? And several verses were listed, including the following. Jeremiah 9, 23, 1 Corinthians 1, 31, Psalm 27, 1 and 2, Psalm 49, 6 and 7, Proverbs 11, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Now, the individual who wrote this, and I don't know who it was, and I'm thankful I don't know who wrote really any of them, but the idea that the person makes mention of is a very pertinent and important one. Let's begin with some ideas. Three things, it seems to me, are mentioned in the, in the wording of the question. One is about selfies. Another is about posting pictures in whatever form they may be. And another is about bragging in relation to things we have or things we're doing. The first statement following that is this, without a doubt... And this individual made note of it. Self-exaltation is wrong. It would appear, based on the Bible, it's wrong in every frame and in every arena in which it appears. It doesn't have to relate to one's cell phone. It could relate to one's email account. It could relate to any other attributes of life. Self-exaltation is just not right. The person listed some verses. I'd like to add these two as well. In Matthew 23, Jesus directly addressed the Pharisees and to them straightforwardly. 
He told them that their self-exaltation was absolutely wrong. Now remember, they were religious people. And although they did have some issues and problems that were amiss, on that occasion, he addressed their attribute of self-exaltation. Maybe even a plainer one is in Luke 14. You'll notice in verses 7 to 11, Jesus said this. If I could just summarize the last part of it. The person who exalts himself will be abased. God will make sure of it. But on the other hand, the person who humbles himself will be exalted. Now the Lord made that statement and remember in relation to a teaching concerning, suppose someone comes in, maybe they're not dressed particularly well, and you say to them, sit back here in the back. Suppose another person, though, comes in dressed nicely and you bring them up here to the front and again set them in a nice place and yet the time comes that that's someone else's seat and so you now have to ask them, would you please move? You have someone else's seat. And so now with a bit of embarrassment, you have to take the lower seat. The Lord used that idea and said, don't you know that those who abase themselves will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be abased. Some of these comments are then in order. We're told on many occasions in the Bible to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, for He will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, as well as James chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But it is with those in mind I might say this. It doesn't seem as though it would always be wrong to take a picture of oneself on your cell phone you might well be intending to use it as a memorial. Maybe there's a particular important scene in life and you'd like to have a, a memorial picture of this, of this idea, this entity, this very significant moment. Maybe you have no motive whatsoever of self-exaltation. It is for that reason I think the person who wrote it did a fine thing by observing it does hinge completely on motive. If the whole reason and motive behind this selfie your self-exaltation, it's wrong, and it ought not be done. But if the motive isn't that, if it's informational, if it's more as a matter of simply wanting to be something other than self-exaltation, I can find no biblical principle that would say that's wrong. For that reason, we might summarize like this. This particular question highlighted three things. One were these selfies. Another was bragging, and another were pictures. I'm told that there are those who it seems use their cell phone to take an overwhelming number of pictures in an attribute of bragging. Look at my car. Look at my motorcycle. Look at my house and my yard. And again, if the purpose behind any of that is something that's a braggart, then that's wrong. God doesn't want us to do that, but... If it is merely to share information with no motive of bragging, again, I can't find a principle that would say that's wrong. For that reason at the bottom, there are several things among those verses listed. And the person made note of Proverbs 27 verses 1 and 2. That one used the word boast. So again, brag is to boast. Boast not thyself, the text says. So you and I, if we are tempted to do this, we need to try hard to bring those kind of thoughts into play. And maybe one thing that can help us do that is this. May we never forget who gives us these things. 
the land we have, or the house, or yea, the other possessions. Isn't it God that makes them possible? Isn't it He who permits us to enjoy them while we're here upon this earth? But surely we must remember to be a good steward of them and not to be given to bragging or to, say, trying to use it to insult someone else. These cell phones that we have, they're very powerful machines. No doubt about that. You may have even heard the statement made that there's more computing power in a cell phone than there was that sent the man to the moon in July of 1969. And that's true. More computing power. And we know that those can be used in ways that are perfectly fine. But we also know that our world has developed the capability of using them in ways that are hurtful. Ways that do not lift up the cause of Christ, but ways, quite frankly, that harm it. And bragging and things like that certainly would be one way that can be done. Maybe we've said some things that could be helpful in regard to that, but may we just use from it the opportunity to use our cell phones in a way that would glorify God, not question His cause, to lift high the banner of His truth, not put a stumbling block before anybody else because of it. You know, in my family, we use cell phones to share pictures of the grandbaby Denise and I have, and we enjoy that greatly. We don't get to see her near as often as her parents. We don't even get to see her as often as, you know, the daycare people. And Denise and I are thankful to be able to have a picture. And that is, it's shared in a braggart way. Neither Christy nor Matt are intending to share it to brag about what she's doing, but to inform us about the way she's growing, to inform us about the things she's doing. And quite frankly, Denise and I appreciate that information. So, again, I wouldn't say that always those kinds of things shared are wrong, but what's my motive for doing it? What about the second question? This question is a bit shorter. The question reads like this. Isn't it the duty of Christians to seek and to save the lost, to be soul winners? What has happened to reaching out to the lost? Why don't Christians pray more for the lost? Serving and saving were marks of Christ's life on earth. They should be marks of His people today as well. But to do that, we must engage the broken and the hurting people around us. There are quite a few things involved in that question. The opening part of it was this, isn't it the duty of Christians to seek and to save the lost? And overwhelmingly that answer is yes. For those reasons, look at some of these ideas. Wasn't it true that Jesus, after He'd been crucified, after He'd been resurrected, He made this statement, "...go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now that's Mark's version, and both Matthew and Luke record their versions. And so you and I might begin to notice that was initially stated to the apostles without a doubt. But did it have implications and meaning for not only them, but the other Christians of that day, as well as you and I still today? Well, as we look at the later parts of the New Testament... We, for instance, could look at the example of Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Teach others also? What about Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14? 
on that occasion, the Hebrew writer pointed out, it ought to have been time for them to be teachers, but they still were in need of themselves being given the sincere milk of the Word. They hadn't exercised themselves in regard to that action. So again, the answer is yes, certainly. That next thought, though, is this one. It centers around the value of the soul, doesn't it? Not just yours and mine, but, yea, the others as well. In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, didn't Jesus say, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And so that other individual... His or her soul is just as valuable as yours or mine. And so the question was asked, isn't it our duty to seek and save the lost? Look at what else I would share with you. The person asked, should we pray for the lost? Oh, absolutely. I would offer you some of these thoughts. First, we know that we cannot pray that God would save them in that condition because that would in fact violate the terms that God Himself has revealed. We know that won't happen. But can we pray that this individual might come to know the truth, that they might hear it, and that they might have a heart open to it? Can we pray that they might be touched by it, and that they, of course, would respond to it in a positive way? Oh, yes. And could it even be possible we could pray that God would help us to know what to say and how to say it, and maybe the occasion to say it? All of those would be wonderful things to pray for. I'm reminded of Paul in Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3. He urged the church in Colossae, pray that the Word of God would have free course. Now, he specifically asked them to pray that he, namely Paul, would have the wherewithal to share those messages of truth in the way that, 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 he, that he should. So should we pray at least for those things in relation to the lost? Oh, Absolutely. Maybe we could be more dutiful in regard to that. To that, I might add this. Could we as a congregation give a more earnest and directed consideration to this topic? Maybe that would be an exceedingly wise thing to do. You may know there are some congregations that have visitation programs or other programs tailored to the specifics of evangelism, personal evangelism and otherwise. Here at Pippin, we have no such overt program. However, we did have a personal evangelism seminar last fall that at least shared some tools with us. Could we maybe take them, develop a program in which we could put those things into action in a more directed way? Absolutely, we could. Our elders, may we encourage them perhaps that they would give some thought to movement in that direction because we are concerned about the lost, not only overseas, not only in India or North Carolina or Hungary, but their souls even near here, that they too are in need of hearing the gospel and they're in need of responding to it in, in, in a positive way. One last thing on that slide is this one. In any circumstance in which there may well be no overt program, it's still true all of us ought to keep these kinds of things in our prayers and also 
seek those opportunities that we have daily, be it at work or at school, in the community or otherwise, to share nuggets of truth concerning Jesus. Maybe that individual who we drop that nugget to, maybe in time that person may ask and may well have an interest in hearing more of what we have to say. But the answer to that question was certainly yes. Jesus had a concern for the lost, and you and I must as well. Question number three. This one, too, is a bit short. Isn't it wrong to have too many material things, especially if these things take up so much time that you do not have time to do the work of the Lord? Yes. Stated in that way, there again is no doubt about this. Maybe we can start at the beginning and notice, is it wrong to have too many material things? Sure it is. We understand material things are a part of our existence in this flesh. We no doubt are thankful for material things, and it isn't wrong per se to have them. It is wrong if they come between us and God. It is wrong if we devote attention to them instead of attention to the things of truth. I would offer these thoughts for your consideration. We are told in Proverbs 3, verse number 9, Honor God with your substance. That means whatever possessions you and I have as Christians, we must utilize them in a way to honor God. If they ever come between us and God, well, they've gone too far. We are, in fact, looking to them as a God in one way or another besides the God of heaven. So it, could it be that a person could have too many material things and I'm devoting an overwhelming amount of my time taking care of all those things instead of service to God? Sure, that could happen. Absolutely, it could happen. And that's one of the great dangers of materialism, isn't it? The New Testament paints a graphic picture of the error of materialism. Didn't John say it like this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That says it pretty plain. If our love for this earth, our love for the things that associate to it are so great that we allow them to become a chasm, a division between us and the God of heaven. We serve those things as opposed to serving Him. We've erred. We've fallen into the trap of materialism, and we have gone astray. This person's question was very direct. Now, things by themselves aren't wrong. Abraham had a lot of things. You and I remember David had a lot of things, and although he made his errors and sins, I know of no verse that says he worshipped them as opposed to God. But when you and I begin to allow them to take our time, to take our interest, to take our efforts in such a way that we don't direct the proper matter of our talents toward God, this person's right on target. We've erred. And so it is at the bottom of that slide. Doesn't it challenge us? We have to be mindful. And it is an ongoing issue, isn't it? Every day, are you and I living wisely? Are we living circumspectly? We're commanded to in that passage, Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. That implies that I've got to examine myself, examine my life. Where am I directing my attentions? Where am I directing my efforts? Sometimes that could even include money. If I'm spending 
a lot of my money to keep up my things and then giving pittance to God, I've obviously erred. I've got to give Him according to what I've been prospered. If that means not buying certain things, and if it means not taking care of other things in a material way, then I must do that. I must sacrifice that in the effort to give it to God. You'll notice one last thing. Did Jesus say this in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'd like to close this question with that observation. Where is your treasure in mind? Is it in money, things, possessions? Or are those just merely matters that I'm thankful to be a steward of, but really my heart is still with God? That was a good question. What about question four? Question four, again, is a bit short. In fact, somewhat shorter than the others. Another very good question. Did God have His complete plan at creation, including sin and all, or did things have to be changed as we messed up? And that was the way the person worded that question. Did God have His complete plan at creation, or did things have to be changed as the human family messed up? Now that question, in fact, challenges us to think about the full nature of the development really since the creation and even before the creation. So this is a very expansive question. Let's begin like this. We know very well that our God is one who knows all things. He is omniscient, is, is the word that is sometimes used to describe that attribute of God. He knows everything, not only in a religious way, but even in a physical way. He knows what is for you and I in the past. He knows what is for you and I in the present. He knows what is for you and I in the future. Nothing is concealed from Him. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, even there He highlighted the fact that from everlasting to everlasting, He knows it all, and nothing is concealed from Him. That degree of knowledge, as we learn in the Bible, also includes your failures and your faults and mine. He knows about the attribute of what you and I would call human sin. But that also means this. The person's question is, even back before the creation, did God know that man was going to sin? Did He know that Jesus was going to have to come? Did He know that there was going to be a sacrifice at the cross to enable forgiveness of sin? Yes. He did know it. Let's look at some verses that amplify that point. I've asked you to consider Ephesians 1 verse 4 where we'll begin. Now that's near the beginning of that Ephesian letter and Paul's language is very stern and very strong. In that passage, the following wording is found. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now there, the inspired writer said that He, that's God, chose us, that's you and me, in Him, that's Christ. But He made that selection and choice 
before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Now, notice that does not teach individual predestination. That doesn't teach that God selected this person to be saved, but that one to go to hell, and this one to be saved, and that one to go to hell. Now, there have been some throughout history who've used a verse like that one to teach this, but it doesn't. What it teaches is that God predestined a group of people to be saved, those that are in Christ. And anybody at any time who in fact is faithful to the Lord and in Christ are those that would fit that description. Today, that's Christians. But not only that passage, let's look at another one. In 2 Timothy 1 verse number 9, Paul writing said, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began? Question. According to that passage, when was this blessedness of God's grace given to us? It says before the world began. Before the creation ever took place, God knew man was going to mess up. He knew that man was going to fail and do that which he ought not do, and He knew he would be disobedient. But God in His eternal wisdom had already selected a plan. It would involve His Son. It would involve the cross. And God knew that even before He ever created this world. Let's look at another one. Revelation 13, 8. In that last book in the Bible... Verse number 8 of that Revelation 13 reads like this, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now the Lamb is Christ, and that text says He was slain from the foundation of the world. But I thought the Romans nailed those nails into His hands and His feet as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Text says that was in the plan and mind of God. Even before the world began, he was already slain. The person's question was so good. And the answer is it's not merely as a result of our messing up that God changed his plan. God had this plan all along that it would involve his son, that it would involve the crucifixion, and that obedience to him in Christ is what would be that which would make an individual pleasing in his sight. Let's close that slide then. And don't you find that so terribly remarkable? If it's true that even before God ever created this universe, He knew that He was going to create man, but He knew man was going to fail. But He already had a plan. Doesn't that highlight how much He loves mankind? And how much He wants mankind to be saved? If He was willing to plan it that far in advance, the scheme whereby you and I could be saved from sin and redeemed, surely that highlights the wording of Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. I'd call that to your attention because there's an adjective there that's so terribly impressive. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. May I ask what kind of purpose was it? The text says it was an eternal purpose. 
The scheme of redemption is not a fly-by-night matter. It's not that God came up with this on the spur of the moment. This was the eternal plan He had, and it was His purpose that He would save all of those that would come to God through Him, through Christ. That question again was a very good one, just like the other ones had been. Let's look at question number five. Question five, again, is relatively brief. It reads like this. Must every prayer without exception end with a phrase, in Jesus' name? And in particular, the person is wondering about, what about a prayer in which a person drifts off to sleep before ending the prayer? Maybe you've been in a situation maybe under a great burden or under a particular circumstance of life, you begin a prayer and maybe you become distracted before the prayer is over and you basically end up forgetting to say or failing to say in Jesus' name. Or maybe at night as you begin your, your, your prayer before you drift off into sleep, maybe as you do that again you become sufficiently in slumber that ultimately you again fail to say these, these three words in Jesus' name. The question again is a good one. What about that prayer? Does God respect it? Does He direct matters toward it? Or in light of that failure to say those things, is that prayer basically of, of no value anymore? Let's build some consideration like this. First of all, this question does highlight before us the power of, and the importance of prayer. It should be a vital part of the life of every Christian. In fact, several times in the Bible, the attribute of prayer is lifted up several times a day for those that would love the Lord. And maybe we can give some more extensive thought to a host of verses along that line, perhaps in another lesson soon. But maybe it'd be fair now simply to say, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now the latter part of that verse is one that we so frequently remember. The effectual fervent prayer. Notice, a prayer needs to be fervent. We've got to believe in what we're asking. But it also says it needs to be effectual. It doesn't need to be littered with things we don't really believe. Sometimes we can fall into vain repetitions, can't we? We pray it because that's what we've always heard. We've got to be careful with that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 9 and following, Use not vain repetitions. So when we pray, let's earnestly pray from the heart, meaning what we ask Him. Because we are told in James 1, verses 5 through 8, an unstable man... I'm sorry, a double-minded man's unstable in all his ways. And let not that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord. We've got to ask in faith. But this question has done much more than that. Even with the consideration of asking in faith, suppose a person begins a prayer. And I might say again that the Bible does not limit us to one position. You know, it's not as if we've got to always be on our knees with head bowed. The Bible doesn't command that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, there men were asserted, lift up holy hands. I mean, it wouldn't be wrong to have a different posture in prayer. Have you ever prayed sitting in the seat of your car? 
when there's an accident about to happen, it wouldn't at all be inappropriate in a quick way to say, Lord, help me to do the thing or to help this other individual so that an accident may be avoided. The point is, those kind of things would not at all be wrong. But all of them basically bring us back to the question at hand. What about the phrase, in Jesus' name? Must that be at the end in order for, the, in order for God to hear the prayer? Let's look at a few verses. First of all, Jesus expressly told His apostles in John 14, 15, and 16, and I've asked you to notice it, to ask in His name. Let's look specifically at that opening verse, John 14, verses 13 and 14. John 14, beginning in verse 13. Jesus speaking said, Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Look over the next chapter, John 15, verse 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Look at John 16. This time it's verse number 23. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now, those circumstances, those passages, remember, the setting was this. Every one of those was uttered by Jesus on the night prior to His crucifixion. And the audience that was listening to Him were the apostles. He told those apostles, if you ask anything in My name, I'll give it to you. If you ask the Father in My name, He will do it. You and I might turn that question, though, to this. Is that promise to all of us? Is that promise to all of us as Christians today, though we are not apostles? Let's turn over to 1 John, and let's see what statements is there made that can offer us some guidance on this point. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, this statement worded to all Christians is now found. This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will... He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. Now that passage reminds us that to all Christians, first and foremost, the prayer must be asked in His will. And that leads me to offer a word of caution. It would be important, it seems to me, for each of us to keep in mind as we pray, even if we don't explicitly say it, we need to make sure to have the mentality if it is the will of God. It may not be His will this sick person gets better. It may not be in accordance to His will that this event that I hope happens, happens. It may not be that that should be the thing that in His infinite wisdom is be the better for you and me. In fact, wouldn't you say this? There are times in life when we pray for things and we come to realize it's far better we did not get it. Isn't that true? There are times maybe you've prayed for something in life and then five years later, eight years, ten years later, you realize had you gotten that, 
it really would have worked against your faithful service to the Lord in ways that you didn't realize at the time. But hindsight is twenty twenty. May I say again, we ought to be thankful many times for unanswered prayer. And so as we pray, remember God is not a puppet on our string. We don't just get, get Him to give us whatever we happen to ask for. We always need to realize His wisdom is greater than ours. His infinite knowledge is greater than ours. And He knows what would be best for us. I know here in public we tend to include statements like, If it be thy will, may we do a good job of including sentiments like that in our private prayers as well. These statements about prayer are leading us back to the answer to the question, did you notice the statements here? This is the confidence that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. That passage says that those things we ask of God, we receive of Him. It doesn't say anything about explicitly including that phrase in Jesus' name. I would urge that that is a good thing to include because we always need to be mindful that it's through the mediator Christ that we have any approach to God. And so we should seek to ask in accordance to His will. But I might say again, that text doesn't say anything about that. In other words, that little phrase in Jesus' name is not a statement that automatically means that that prayer is pleasing to God. I may have asked it not according to His will, and just because that statement concludes it, that doesn't mean that prayer is right. May I say then, if you and I pray, and that isn't included, but the sentiment of it is there. If it's our intent to approach God with the thought of the will of Christ, and to ever make sure that we do ask it in accordance to that, it would seem from the promise of the Bible, God hears and is pleased with that prayer. And it seems to me that's very comforting. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes those scenes in life, there could be a very harrowing incident about to happen. If you see it, you could pray, please help me, Lord, or help those individuals. And even if in the haste of that moment there's not time to include in Jesus' name, I can find no reason that, again, as long as you understand that it's asked in accordance to that premise, that that would be a very pleasing prayer to God. Again, let me say though, gentlemen, as we lead prayers in public, and as you lead it in a way to be beneficial to others, I think it's very wise to not only conclude the prayer at some point with a phrase in Jesus' name, it doesn't have to be at the end, but certainly to use that word, Amen. Amen. That lets everyone know you've concluded the prayer. And it lets everyone who may have reason to do so then to proceed with other activities. Now, this question the person asked did not include the word amen. But let me say, I do think that's a very useful thing to certainly include as a part of concluding a prayer. Remember when Jesus gave that model prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
So if Jesus used the word Amen, wouldn't that be a good thing for us to do to close a particular prayer always with, with that kind of term? This fifth question has asked us about prayer. We have one more question tonight. Question number six. This one hits us again very clearly with Christian obligation. It has to do with our giving. The question reads like this. The Old Testament Hebrews were commanded to tithe, which was 10%, in addition to the other sacrifices that they gave to God. Since the New Testament gospel is greater than the Old Testament, shouldn't a Christian expect to give financially more than 10% today? Now, that's a very good question, isn't it? And that directly challenges you and I individually. Let's develop a few points and then provide some consideration to this very interesting question. Let's start at the top. First of all, the person is right. They in the Old Testament, as you and I have studied on Sunday morning, they were required to give what was called the tithe. Numbers chapter 18, verse 24, Deuteronomy 14, 22, as well as other passages affirm that in addition to other perspective gifts, they were commanded to tithe. Now remember, that was in addition to the flocks. They had to, remember, take out the best of the flock, give that to God, but that was different than the tithe. They had to, when the harvest time, take the first fruits and give that to God. There were ongoing meat offerings and burn offerings, sin offerings and trespass offerings. All of that was in addition to the tithe. So the answer, again, to be noted is they gave more than 10%. Now to the point at hand. The, the next point the person made was this. Yes, it's true. The Old Testament as a system was inferior to the New we know that because of the wording of Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 9. In particular there it says, We have a better covenant, which was founded upon better promises. So indeed, there it is likened to the old law, and the old law was the one that commanded tithing. And so yes, the gospel is better, it's greater. It's built upon finer promises. It has a greater element of consideration, namely in the sacrifice of Christ. By all means, it's better. And so this conclusion now is to be noted. Should a Christian then, in every sense and always, under all circumstances, give more than 10%? We couldn't exactly say yes to that because of this verse. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says, Let every one of you lay by in store as God hath prospered him. There could be a Christian who is having very dire financial circumstances and simply is unable to give more than 10%. Maybe that person isn't even able to give even close to 10%. But if that person gives as he or she has been prospered, God is pleased with that gift. If that person purposes in his or her heart, proceeds to give in accordance to that, 2 Corinthians 12 says, God looks upon it according to what the person has and not according to what they have not. And God receives it that way. But I don't believe that was the thrust of the person's question. 
the person, it would seem by the wording, meant to say, what if a person in his or her bountiful world of blessings is capable of giving more than 10% but chooses not to do so, chooses to give a relatively small amount? I believe there's reason for concern in that. If it's true that we seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And if it's true that we love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, Mark 12, verse 30. And if it's true that truly our soul, we realize, is more important than anything else, it would seem then that we'd be motivated with a great deal of incentive to give it a proper way in a rightful mount according to our prosperity to God. I know that there are many things to challenge and take our attention. Maybe I spend a fair proportion of my earning in entertainment. Maybe I spend a fair proportion of my earning in the possessions I have. Maybe I spend a fair proportion in other kinds of pursuits in this life. Well, there ain't anything wrong with pursuing those things. But if we short God... Doesn't the weight of judgment in a question like this one challenge us? There were several times in the Old Testament, and I would mention to you one in Malachi chapter 3, God specifically told them, You have not been given to me the way you should have. Now that's strong. Remember, they were under a day when they had to tithe and they had to offer the various gifts, and God said, I would open the windows of heaven and pour out upon you blessings more numerous than you can handle if only you would give to me the way you should. You've robbed me. Malachi's question was strong. Can a man rob God? Now, they were quick to say, well, of course not. And God said, you have robbed me because you've withheld from me what you should have gave me. Are you and I robbing God? Are we failing to give to Him? in the way that we should. If so, our stinginess toward Him is hurting ourselves more than anybody else because He will withhold blessings of heaven from us. And in that withholding, we will be lacking in some things we otherwise could enjoy. We are our own worst enemy if we're stingy with God. This question has challenged us to ask, shouldn't we then with great care be considering a, con a batter? In our prosperity, if it permits us to give in excess of 10%, it would certainly seem we ought to think very seriously about doing it and being cheerful about that. Note again in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, if we give but aren't cheerful about it, God isn't happy with that either. We ought not give because we feel like we have to. We ought not give in a grudging character, but rather to give out of a cheerful heart with a disposition of thanksgiving that we're happy that God will use that to carry out His will and to do the things that would please Him. With that said, we close that slide and we close our questions and answers for tonight. Six questions, they've all been excellent questions. We'll just summarize it like this. I do think there's a value in questions and answers. We will continue to do this as long as questions are offered. And as we give thought to them, our goal is to lift high the Word of God and let it lead us and challenge us and bring our understanding to the placement in which God would have it to be. 
I hope these questions that these individuals have asked have been helpful to each of us. I hope they've challenged us to think about some things that can be helpful as we walk daily in a way to please God. Because isn't it true, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We always offer a moment of invitation. We do that because we want anybody that finds themselves separated from God to realize that this is a convenient and appropriate time and we would love to offer a help and assistance in however we could do it. If there's an individual who wishes to come back to the truth, who once had known it but again has chosen to walk from it, you realize nobody made you apostatize. You did that by your own choice. But if you chose to walk away, you can choose to come back. And the Lord invites you. He, in fact, throws open wide the door of invitation. And you and I have to be the ones to walk through it. He won't make us walk through it. He won't force us. But oh, how lovingly He invites us. That church in Ephesus, aren't we so often reminded in Revelation 2, verses 5 and following, that congregation is one that He said, you've done many things good, but you've left your first love You've got to repent, he said, and return and do the first works. And that same message is pertinent for you tonight. If that's the circumstance of your life, you've got to repent and get back to those first works. Tonight, if we could help you in doing that, we'd love to pray to God on your behalf. We'd love to encourage you, even as your confession would encourage all of us. Tonight, if we can be of assistance and help, won't you come and do it at once while together we stand and sing.